Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Incorporated. PNC Bank National Association, member FDIC. Hi, I'm Lauren Vogelbaum, host of the new How Stuff Works Now podcast. Every week, I'll be bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous developments we've seen in science, technology, and culture. Fresh episodes will be out every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, and everywhere else that fine podcasts are found. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And Caroline, we have talked about reproductive rights on the podcast so many times. Uh, We devoted a two-part podcast to the history of abortion in the United States. But there is an overlooked chapter in our reproductive rights history and also the reproductive rights fights um, that continue today. And that's the issue a forced sterilization. Yeah, I mean, overlooked to the point of this was still happening just a few years ago. Oh, yeah. Um, so, fact bomb listeners, at least 60,000 people from coast to coast in the U.S. were legally, legally in all caps, sterilized in the 20th century. And ultimately, 32 states passed compulsory eugenics laws mostly affecting people of color, people with disabilities, poor people, criminals, and the mentally ill. Yeah, in the 1920s, uh, hundreds of young men and women in California alone were sterilized on the basis of schizophrenia, epilepsy, manic depression, and, quote, feeble-mindedness. Even masturbation or pregnancy outside of marriage were considered immoral and nymphomaniacal, thus... Possibly requiring sterilization. Yeah, and we're going to see that issue of pregnancy outside of marriage as a basis for sterilization really ramp up after World War II, which is horribly ironic considering that we refer to that as the baby boom. Well, Um, yeah, I mean, but that gets it. And we'll trust me, we'll get into this. But that gets at the root of who is producing babies in the, quote, appropriate way. Exactly. Or producing, quote, appropriate babies. And we are going to focus in this episode, by the way, on 
the forced sterilization or compulsory sterilization, as it's also termed, of women of color, um, we're not going to focus as much on the sterilization of people with disabilities, uh, both physical disabilities and uh, mental disabilities, because that was something that we talked about more in our episode on disability and sexuality. Um, so getting back to how the sterilization happened, it went down via vasectomy, hysterectomy, salpingectomies, uh, which is the removal of fallopian tubes and also castration. And it certainly wasn't limited to the U.S., although we're mostly focusing on the U.S. and Puerto Rico today. Uh, this also happened in Canada, Czech Republic, Denmark, Japan, Iceland, India, Finland, all over the country, as Bell Boggs writes in For the Public Good, The Shameful History of Forced Sterilization in the U.S. It was hardly limited to this country. And I want to say I haven't read a ton about it, but that it has been a recent issue, too, in uh, Uzbekistan. And compulsory sterilization is absolutely a reproductive justice issue and absolutely one that white second wave feminists, both knowingly and unknowingly, overlooked in their campaign for legalized abortion. They put all of their effort into that aspect of reproductive rights, whereas as this was happening, women of color in the United States had to fight for the right to bear children and raise families as they saw fit rather than abortion access. Not to say that abortion access is something that only white women would want, but it speaks to a very narrow definition of reproductive rights that we have had. Yeah, and as Tamar Kraft Stoller, the director of the Women in Prison Project at the Correctional Association of New York, told the Center for Investigative Reporting... These issues are just as important as the brutal Republican attack on reproductive rights and their tolerance and perpetuation of rape culture. And and that's something that echoes what Laura Jimenez, the executive director of California Latinas for Reproductive Justice, told Salon. She says that mainstream feminism has really been defined by issues of abortion and contraceptive access and the right not to have children, whereas, she says, women of color, quote, have had to fight for our right to have children consistently, sterilization abuse being just one example of this struggle. And I think I mean, it was it was eye opening enough reading all of these sources, these articles, these studies into this issue. And it was horrifying enough to see how it has continued into the 21st century. But it was also so eye opening to read these accounts from women of color saying like, yes, let's fight for reproductive rights and justice. But that doesn't stop at abortion. And my response to that was, holy crap, of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. And so I think telling this story is so critical for all of those reasons. And it's also foundational for intersectional feminism today, because A, if we're not aware of sterilization abuse and this legacy, then we're not going to know to even keep an eye out for it's still happening today. Mm -hmm. And B, that definition of reproductive rights will remain so narrow. And that's also why, for instance, the term reproductive justice was even coined because reproductive rights had become so almost co-opted by a, I mean, I don't mean this in a conspiratorial way, but by a 
white middle class agenda, you know, that only experience this this one lack of access rather than this other form of abuse perpetrated on women of color. Um, so let's get into the history of this, because here's the thing. Sterilization abuse is something that wasn't going on in the sense of uh, the way we think about uh, illegal abortion of like back alley abortions, very hush hush. Um, this wasn't hush hush at all. The U.S. government was 100 percent complicit in this. Mm-hmm. And the story starts in 1907. Yeah, that's when Indiana passed the nation's first eugenics law, legalizing compulsory sterilization for, quote, unwilling and unwitting people. And pretty soon after, Washington State and California followed suit within the next two years. And the official classifications uh, listed for people who were part of this program included feeble-minded, dependent, Diseased. Uh, also, welfare recipients with children were highly vulnerable because there's this idea uh, that really stems from the progressive era of poverty being a character flaw rather than a result of, I don't know, something like systemic racism uh, or, you know, failing social programs. The vestiges of slavery. Yeah, I don't know. Just little things like that. And so... The idea, which still persists today, of women who are, quote, in the system having children at all or having more children was something that the government just did not want to tolerate. And Dorothy Roberts, who wrote the book Killing the Black Body, said about this, forced sterilization has always targeted people considered the least valuable in our society. In the early 20th century, that meant white immigrants. By the mid-20th century, that meant poor women, black and Puerto Rican women, and other women of color whose bodies were not seen as fit to be protected by the state. And, spoiler alert for later in the episode, in contemporary context, that also includes uh, the population, the massive population of incarcerated women as well. So, again, I mean, just keep... Keep in mind this hierarchy that we have erected, even within, quote unquote, mainstream feminism of the needs and experiences of white women as it relates to reproductive rights Mm -hmm. at the top. Yeah, exactly. And interestingly, until the 1930s, men were actually the majority of the sterilized victims or survivors. And then it wasn't until then that attention shifted dramatically and almost exclusively to women. So this shift to women uh, was largely due to mounting concerns over, quote unquote, unfit mothers welfare dependency, and population control. And this is when Margaret Sanger and the beginnings of Planned Parenthood and uh, the eugenics movement all start to merge together because Sanger, as we discussed in part two of our episodes on abortion, Margaret Sanger absolutely capitalized on eugenics mania happening at the time um, to get attention and funding to Planned Parenthood saying like, oh, well, you know, we have all these these unfit mothers are going to be a real drain on the system. So, you know, maybe we should give them some kind of uh, she wasn't pro abortion, um, but she was like, maybe we should 
give them some kind of contraceptive. I don't know. Yeah, and and we did touch in that episode on the idea that was absolutely held at the time uh, in the 1960s, particularly by black power groups, that this was race genocide and that the government, especially when it came to contraception and family planning clinics, it couldn't be trusted. And from a modern perspective, especially a modern perspective, if you don't know about these histories, you look back and you think, well, that's ridiculous. These clinics were just there to provide contraception. They were there to help you plan a family or not plan a family. Um, but when you look at it in the context of no, literally a huge and significant portion of women of color were forcibly sterilized in this country, all of a sudden you realize, oh, OK, this was a legitimate Concern, And I think that that's left out of so many narratives about reproductive rights. Well, and also understandable suspicion, as we touched on in that episode as well, of those clinics popping up in poor neighborhoods and usually poor neighborhoods predominated by uh, families of color. Mm, Exactly. But if we go back to the progressive era where in, you know, the 1920s and 30s, the way that these forceful sterilizations would go down were often through lies. So um, as Dorothy Roberts, author of Killing the Black Body, pointed out, you know, the, the first targets, so to speak, were often immigrant women. So a lot of times these women would be told that, listen, if you don't allow us to essentially like give you a hysterectomy or remove your fallopian tubes, then we are going to yank your immigration rights. You're going to lose your housing, your government benefits. Um, and we might also take away the kids you already have. And not to mention that a lot of women were led to believe they were intentionally misled, I should say, that these uh, these surgeries were reversible. Mm-hmm. Um, that's actually so the euphemism getting your tubes tied mm-hmm. um, was very misleading because it was like, oh, well, if you it's like tying a shoelace, if you can tie them, then you can certainly untie them. I pictured a balloon, but yeah, shoelace will work. Um, and there were also issues, I mean, as you can imagine with, uh, language barriers. Uh, if people were recent arrivals to this country and they didn't speak or read the language, the government was able to capitalize on this and get people to sign off on things that they for sure did not fully understand. And issues too of outright illiteracy, which will mm-hmm. come up again later in the episode, um, particularly among, um, poorer, more, remote communities that would not have had, you know, access to uh, education. And typically these sterilizations were performed after C-sections, which gave these doctors another quote unquote justification saying, you know what? They already have a number of children. If they undergo any more C-sections, it's going to cause a lot of physical harm because there's so much tissue. So we have to sterilize these women. And we're just going to, you know, while we're in there, let's just we'll just take care of it then. No need to really talk about it. Just do it. And I mean, again, this was a formalized system. This was not a back alley situation. Some states like North Carolina established formal eugenics boards to keep a lookout for candidates, (laughs) victims for the, quote, asexualization process. Uh, People who were targeted had low IQs, exhibited, quote, abnormal behavior, or they had a presumed risk of promiscuity, criminality or social dependency. Again, Those last items, like, 
you're not looking at this as part of a systemic problem. You're just looking at this as like it's the fault of the individual all the time. At oh, its yeah. Root. Well, I mean, this was the progressive era. I mean, you have like Teddy Roosevelt and all of these like leading men being like, well, we're you know, we have American exceptionalism and we're just going to build the, the best white, <laughs> the best and whitest country that we can. So we are going to yeah. breed out all of these abnormalities. And uh, in Bell Boggs's piece for the new New South that we found via Long Reads, which is such a fantastic resource and also a fantastic podcast. Shout out. <laughs> um, in her piece focusing on sterilization that went down in North Carolina, one of the people that she talked to, one of the men she talked to who exhibited that quote unquote abnormal behavior. I mean, there was some truancy involved, but it really sounds like today these kids would just be diagnosed with ADD. I mean, that's what we're that's the level that we're talking yeah, about. Oh, yeah. Exactly. Of abnormal behavior. Low bar. I mean, it's not like the bar for promiscuity was like uh, at about 50 partners will cut you off and sterilize you. It was like, I mean, again, layers of assumptions about women and their sexuality, especially women of color being hypersexualized in the popular mentality, like uh, the way that people viewed women of color. Well, and even the class issue, too, because a lot of, you know, you, you do have white women also being sterilized but it's not rich white women you wouldn't have like a wealthy young man with ADD like behaviors who would be sterilized certainly not this was something that was also inextricably linked with poverty so if we do for instance look at North Carolina from 1930 to, ni- to the 1970s the state sterilized at least 7600 people 65% of whom were black women, even though black women composed just 25% of the state population. But Californians listening, I know we have a lot of fans in San Francisco. Shout out to L.A. Hello. You are living in America's sterilization capital. Yeah, from 1909 to 1964, 20,000 women and men were non-consensually sterilized in that state. And according to a lot of historians, Nazi leaders consulted California's eugenics leaders in the 1930s leading up to their own program of eliminating populations that they considered undesirable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's another layer of horror to all of this is that to repeat what you just said, the Nazis studied the U.S. Yeah. To then apply to the system that would then lead to concentration camps. Yeah, I mean, it was considered the supporters of eugenics and forced sterilization considered it to be a social benefit because if you eliminate and breed out, so to speak, these undesirables, you'll end up saving the state some money. You won't have to pay out as much welfare or fund as many relief programs. Uh, California, for instance, defined forced sterilization as a prophylactic measure to protect public health, taxpayer money, and reduce the, quote, unfit population. And these eugenics boards and organizations had plenty of cash to spend on propaganda, such as uh, in the 1930s, there was this group, the Human Betterment Foundation, uh, which sounds oh so sketchy. So it put out this poster listing the quote unquote effects of sterilization, being like, hey guys, <laughs> sterilization is great. I mean, like, we don't need to worry about this at all. And at the top of the list, It said, 
one effect only. It prevents parenthood. And then lower down the list, it says it's a protection, not a punishment. Therefore, it carries no stigma or humiliation. Yeah. Way to tell us how to feel. Poster. Thanks a lot. Well, so how did this happen? Where did this even come from? How did this get started? Well, first of all, this whole selective breeding thing was not a new idea. Uh, when we look at history, babies who were born with physical deformities in ancient Greece were killed at birth. And Plato thought that, quote, the best of either sex should be united with the best as often as possible. So, like, the way that you would breed some prize show dogs or something. Can you imagine going on a date with Plato? Oh, my God. Plato, Yes. Plato. No. Bye, Felicia. Not so much. But I mean, again, like this gets to the environment and the culture and climate of the progressive era and their, you know, public health activism. All of a sudden you've got this conviction that science can solve everything, including our social problems. But if we look at who came up with this whole eugenics idea to the point of coining the term eugenics, It was a dude named Francis Galton, and Francis was the cousin of one Charles Darwin. Uh, He was a British gent, and he was a total child prodigy. Side note, I was reading about Galton in Bell Boggs' piece, and the kid was, like, writing incredible letters at four, (laughs) um, which was astounding. Um, But uh, he was really excited when... Oh, Cousin Chuck's The Descent of Man was published because it really supported the development of his theory that you could positively and negatively breed in or breed out traits, including poverty. So to positively breed, that would be kind of the Plato school of thought of like, listen, only the best should have sex with the best, of course. That's how you get hemophilia. Yes. I guess they really didn't think much about inbreeding. And family shrubs as opposed to trees. <laughs> uh, negative breeding would involve sterilization. Essentially, when you pinpoint those quote unquote abnormal or unfit people in your population, make sure they cannot have babies. And so often, Caroline, reading about these eugenics uh, sentiments just reminds me of so many just offhanded statements that you see on social media in response to, you know, news stories about people acting foolish or doing something terrible. And you have, you know, that that one person or 12 people on Facebook being like, and that's, you know, people like that shouldn't be allowed to have babies. It's like, ho. You don't know what you're talking about because we actually did that. And so in 1883, that's when Galton coined the term eugenics in his book, Inquiries into Human Faculty and Its Development. And I think it's so fascinating that this set of cousins like basically shaped the cultural climate of an era because, I mean, yes, you had – Darwin's ideas about biological evolution. But you also had all of these progressive era people like so gung ho about social Darwinism and like who can climb up the ladder and like, oh, you're you're worthy because you have all this money or you're worthy because you can afford such and such and you contribute to society. Caroline, they were like the Kardashians of their day. Oh, string of curse words. (laughs) 
Um, in 18, in the 1890s, you had Kansas Dr. F. Hoyt Pilcher, who was already surgically sterilizing the feeble-minded children he saw. Children. Yeah. Children. Yeah, just going ahead and doing that. And Dr. Harry Clay Sharp just castrating patients who masturbated. And the American Medical Association also supported compulsory sterilization for criminals. You know who was the president of the American Medical Association for a time? Another Kardashian of his day? J. Marion Sims. The father of gynecology, whom we talked about in the last podcast? Yeah, the racist, self-promoting surgeon. Oh, yeah. Old school AMA was kind of no good. And seriously, listeners, uh, after you listen to this episode, go back and listen to our two-parter on abortion because um, they are... They are not helpful in that situation. Yeah. Talk about bro culture. And for another example of how this mindset was spreading among the medical community in 1899, one W. Duncan McKim recommended just killing people that, quote, we deem unworthy of the high privilege of reproduction via carbonic acid gas. So like the gas chambers at concentration camps. Yeah. Just kill them. Just kill them. And in 1910, you have the opening of the eugenics record office in New York's Cold Springs Harbor. And it's the epicenter of America's eugenics movement that the Nazis would draw inspiration from. And uh, there was a New York Times article about this Cold Springs Harbor lab that the building still exists. And there was an exhibit not too long ago, basically like opening up. You know, what it was used for and all of the they called them like the haunted files, because these were the files of people that they were essentially monitoring for, you know, sterilization. And there's this fantastic picture like th- that looks fantastic. It's like, oh, vintage women in lab coats looking at records. How neat. What what kind of old school rad stem ladies are these? Oh, God, they're sorting through eugenics records. Yeah. So equal opportunity. uh horribleness. Yeah, I mean and it was it was there that one of the superintendents, a guy named Harry Lawlin, hatched this sterilization plan that would spread across the states in Puerto Rico. Essentially, the uh Eugenics Record Office established a blueprint that the US government and state governments would replicate to I guess uh negatively breed out um, traits that they deemed unworthy of reproduction. Yeah. And I mean, when we move into the 1920s, we see pro-eugenics propaganda spreading through things like better babies contests and fittest families literature. And I feel like we talked about this on our long ago episode on pageant kiddos. Yeah. Before Miss America, there were uh, better babies contests. Yeah. So like, oh, look at this white baby. Good for you, baby, for being white and perfect. Um, For example, there was a 1926 poster uh, that said every 48 seconds, someone is born in America who will never grow up beyond age eight. And uh, helpfully, uh, the quote, uh, few normal persons go to jail. Hmm. 
Okay. There's, there's that word normal, normal yeah. and abnormal. A lot of obsession with normalcy at that time. Yeah. Um, and we also have to revisit uh, a landmark case in 1927 that we discussed in our episode on disability and sexuality, um, because this episode apparently is like 10 stuff I never told you <laughs> episodes all in one. Um, but this is a Supreme Court decision, Buck v. Bell, in which the Supreme Court upheld legal sterilization. Mm -hmm. And we referenced Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes's opinion in that episode. But (laughs) let's read it again, shall we? Because, I mean, it really sums up the mentality at the time. And this is coming from the Supreme Court bench. It's better for the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime or let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. The principle that sustains compulsory vaccination is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. End quote. Mind brain exploding it's all over the studio walls yeah because he just said compulsory vaccination in other words ain't no thing it's just sterilizing you it's just like getting a tetanus shot yeah but we should also note and repeat for people who haven't listened to those earlier episodes that the three generations of imbeciles that he was referring to were women who were judged to be promiscuous yeah i mean it was all based around the buck in this case was carrie buck who was forcibly sterilized after she was raped and impregnated and had her baby. And uh, her mother was, I want to say she was illiterate or something like that. So they were, she, she just came from, because she now had the baby, that's the three generations, baby, Carrie, and her mom. Yeah. And further driving home how this was institutionalized, this was part of the country's agenda in the 1930s the rockefeller foundation uh, of the the rockefeller family of the rockefeller center where you ice skate in the holidays right exactly they were carrying out official population control research and theories coming out of this foundation really expressed this general idea that economic problems in underdeveloped countries around the world were really just problems of too many people if only We could control the population growth, then the standard of living would rise. And we will experiment with that. We, these Americans in Puerto Rico, as we'll talk about later in the podcast. Um, So sterilization abuse had actually dropped off a bit after, you know, the 1930s. um, You have the war happen and it picks up again around the 50s and 60s and especially In 1964, when LBJ starts his War on Poverty initiative, because that funnels federal money towards sterilizations as part of its family planning effort with the Family Planning Services and Population Research Act established by the Office of Economic Opportunity, which incorporated sterilization into its family planning portfolio. And speaking of portfolios, we should note that access to the recently introduced and legalized pill was not accessible to single women, for instance, at the time. And we certainly did not have the uh, array of contraceptive options that are available for women today. And sterilizations were 90 percent reimbursed by Medicaid. 
And the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, Hugh, which comes up a lot in this uh, history, was very loosey-goosey about how these sterilizations were offered and reimbursed. And this is a situation, too, where it's like, follow the money. Mm-hmm, that's right. Yeah, because uh, from the late 60s up to 1974, you had 100,000 voluntary-ish sterilizations every year because while they had obtained signed consent, it was not really so much informed signed consent. You basically had doctors selling sterilizations to migrant working class women and welfare recipients, some of whom, like we mentioned earlier, might not be able to read or fully understand or were just simply coerced. And after, you know, the post-World War II baby boom, you have this population boom panic. People are freaking out about overpopulation. And between 1970 and 1974, we see a threefold increase in female sterilization. But the line between voluntary and involuntary is getting awfully blurry. And as we talked about in our Mothers of Gynecology episode, like, yes, it is important that we establish that there were some women who absolutely wanted to have a hysterectomy and did not want to have any more kids. But there were far more women who were misled and coerced into these, especially if you were poor Mm -hmm. or if you were a woman of color. Yeah, I mean, this really the date range here in 1970 to 74 really drives it home in a personal way because my brother was born in 1970. And so it's like, you know, not to make this about me, but I mean, it really does bring it home of how. Recently, this was happening and and still, I mean, still was happening. Um, But as we move into the 70s and you've got increasing access to birth control, it was still largely just a benefit for middle class white women. I mean, despite the fact that you've got Roe versus Wade in 1973, both voluntary and involuntary sterilization were still the number one birth control method for women between the ages of 30 and 44. And we should also say, too, I don't have the legal timeline in front of me, but even with that birth control access, yes, it was mostly beneficial to middle class white women, but especially to middle class married white women. Yeah. Um, so if we look, though, at African-American women in the 1950s and 60s, Sterilization, especially in the South, peaked. By 1970, 20% of all married African-American women had been sterilized. And you might ask, well, why are they sterilizing all of these married women? Because they probably already had children. Right, which gets back to something I said in our Mothers of Gynecology episode where Like, great, when this was an enslaved population, keep popping out more laborers. However, that abruptly, that attitude abruptly shifted in the opposite direction after the abolition of slavery. And suddenly, black people having children was seen as something unwanted in this country. And a product of their presumed hypersexuality um, and low breeding, you know, Um, and... It was so common, these uh, forced hysterectomies, the sterilization abuse, particularly for black women in the South, that civil rights activist and organizer who does not get enough uh, spotlight, Fannie Lou Hamer, nicknamed it the Mississippi appendectomy. 
And speaking of Fannie Lou Hamer, in August 1964, the Freedom Summer is happening. Um, this is part of the Mississippi Summer Freedom Project. And Fannie Lou Hamer goes with the, you know, contingent of civil rights activists to the Democratic National Convention. And she is planning to speak. And LBJ is none too pleased about this. He's like, okay, listen, we're about to have this, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer woman on television. This is, let's ixnay on the hammer stay. And he calls this impromptu press conference to try to divert attention mm-hmm. away from Hamer. And I forget what the press conference was for. What was he, it? He claimed that it was going to be an urgent matter that he had to announce. And it was literally just saying, oh, uh, hey, guys, I just wanted to make everyone aware that this is the nine month anniversary of JFK being shot. So arbitrary. And and what is great, like, I guess the silver lining question mark, question mark, is that the press was not stupid. They immediately were like, oh, you're a jerk. Like, what's Fannie Lou Hamer doing? Like, let's get our cameras back over there because you've clearly misled us. And what Fannie Lou Hamer was doing was speaking truth to power publicly in a televised moment at a Democratic National Convention talking about how she had been forcibly sterilized after she went in for what she thought was just a like routine procedure and was sterilized against her will. Um, she was uh, had that hysterectomy in 1961 without her consent. And she, for the very first time, linked the importance of voting rights with reproductive rights for black women in Mississippi and the South more broadly, because it was politicians in these states who were allowing this to happen, who were yeah. keeping these procedures legal. So it's like, if we can never go vote, we are always going to be subjected to this abuse. Like our bodies are being abused and we don't even have the basic right to cast our vote for who is making these kinds of decisions for us. And she was really carrying the torch of her suffrage and abolitionist forebears like Ida B. Wells. She was Mm -hmm. emphasizing that need to get politicians who are allowing this abuse out of office. And it was really the first time that those two platforms, reproductive rights and voting rights, were merged. Yeah. And I mean, demonstrating through her words and her actions of, of trying to go help people register to vote, that she did demonstrate not only the importance of it, obviously, but the fact that all of these activists were beaten up, were arrested, just shows the lengths that white people in power were going. And I mean, this is like a massive understatement. But the lengths that these people were going to silence black voters and to keep them from voting, because if you had the opportunity to vote, why would you not vote out people who are abusing power? Well, and all, speaking of abuse of power, Hamer also helped expose how legalized sterilization bills were being proposed in the Mississippi legislature and in other uh, southern state legislatures at the time, targeting black welfare recipients, essentially Mm -hmm. saying, listen, we are only going to give you your welfare benefits if you allow us to sterilize you, you know, so choose, choose. Do you want to feed your kids or do you want to have more kids? Yeah. And in 1967, you know, we mentioned earlier the suspicion that so many people in the black community, particularly in black power groups, had for 
any type of family planning service because of these sterilizations. And in 1967, you have the Black Power Conference passing an anti-birth control resolution, declaring it the equivalent to black genocide and not for nothing. You know, this community had been subjected to to absolutely horrific treatment. But at the same time, too, those, you know, those kinds of resolutions, which were largely determined by male leadership Mm -hmm. still wasn't providing women of color with agency over their bodies. And that's something that black liberation activist Tony Cade says with, quote, I've been made aware of the national call to sisters to abandon birth control, to picket family planning centers, to raise revolutionaries. But what plans do you have for the care of me and my child. Exactly. Yeah. So the pushback against these horrifying procedures is not mutually exclusive from the need for birth control and family planning, because uh, a lot of women just continue to go get their birth control because, yes, absolutely. Let's let's fight against these horrifying procedures. But I still want to have control over my body and reproduction. And it was really in 1973 that the tide began to turn somewhat when It was publicized that the Office of Economic Opportunity had funded sterilizations of Mary Alice Ralph and Minnie Ralph. And uh, these two sisters were 14 and 12 years old, respectively, at the time. They were living in Alabama and their mother was illiterate. And she thought that she was simply taking them to the doctor to get a Depo-Provera shot to put them on birth control. And so she... Not being able to read, she signs a consent form with an X and essentially consents, but not really because she doesn't know that she's doing it, to them being uh, sterilized. So the Southern Poverty Law Center steps in. They sue and win, which finally instigates regulatory changes within Hue, the Department of Health, Education and Welfare, which is really kind of the nexus of all of this federally funded sterilization happening and also raising public attention to an issue that the district court in this case determined affected around 100,000 poor women each year. So we had said that uh, earlier in the podcast, you know, the the stat of 60,000 people in the U.S. were forcibly sterilized with, you know, in the 20th century. But that doesn't take into account all of these kind of supposedly consensual sterilizations that were happening to hundreds of thousands of women at the time and not just black women. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And in the 1970s, at the same time that you have white second wave feminists fighting for rights to abortion, you also have Chicana feminists railing against this practice of sterilization without consent. The discovery that this was such a widespread practice among Mexican-American women in California totally galvanized their feminist activism. And it pitted them against both oblivious white feminists and also Mexican-American nationalists who saw birth control as betrayal. And so all of this stems from stereotypes that stretch way back in American history of Mexicans as, quote unquote, hyperbreeders and welfare moms in waiting. And listen to this. The local chapter in California of the National Organization for Women refused to help with this anti-sterilization abuse activism because they wanted to focus all of their reproductive rights efforts on abortion. And 
pick it up, Caroline. You're like about to jump out of your seat. And, of course, you also have male Chicano groups brushing them off completely because that was not a part of their Mexican-American rights agenda. But I'm not done with the white ladies yet, Caroline. I got to circle back to those white ladies because not this was not only a case of them being like, oh, I don't even know that this is happening. La di da. They knew it was going on. They refused Mm -hmm. to help. Yes, because they wanted to focus all of their attention on abortion access, but also because there were white women with private doctors who would give them hysterectomies upon request. And at this time, too, remember how common sterilization was as Mm -hmm. like a go to birth control. And they were like, uh, if you start restricting sterilization access, then I don't know if my white uterus is really going to benefit from that at the end of the day. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Especially like uh, when protective measures like waiting periods or things like that came up as a way literally to protect women from forced or, or coerced sterilization. A lot of these white feminists were like, I don't want to wait 30 days or two days or six hours. Like, no, I want it now. It's my uterus and I want it out. And because of all of this Women of color had to do this for themselves. Oh, yeah. They didn't have a ton of allies in their corner. Um, But in 1975, we have the landmark case that comes up in pretty much like any legal paper you read about sterilization abuse. Madrigal v. Quilligan, in which a group of Mexican-American women brought a lawsuit against the University of Southern California slash Los Angeles County General Hospital for coerced tubal ligations post-cesareans. Um, so remember, this is still happening where it's like uh, a woman has a cesarean section. The doctor's like, well, well, I'm in here. Mm-hmm. And rad lady lawyer alert. Chicana lawyer Antonia Hernandez teams up with Dr. Bernard Rosenfeld who worked at County General and was noticing all this happening. He was like, um, this is not okay. So she had him kind of gather up evidence on the slide to these coercive sterilizations happening and built the case against the hospital. And uh, shout out to the PBS documentary, Nomas Babies, which uh, covers all of this history. And in the end, the judge did not rule in the women's favor attributing it to a, quote, clash of cultures. And also, he just dismissed it as a breakdown in communication between the patients and the doctors. Communication as in having them sign forms in English that Spanish-speaking women could not read. Yeah, but nonetheless, the case did get the ball rolling for bilingual sterilization consent forms, Tighter guidelines, including waiting periods, an emphasis that welfare benefits would not be taken away and rules about no sterilizations for women under 21, which is positive. But again, not all of those second wave white feminists were down. No. And now we hop from the United States mainland over to Puerto Rico because we mentioned Puerto Rico Earlier, when we were talking about the eugenics record office and the superintendent, Harry Lawlin, who kind of put together the blueprint for all of these laws and the federal funding that would happen later on. And Puerto Rico really became almost a giant lab experiment for this population control that uh, U.S. government officials were convinced needed to happen. 
So in 1939, Law 116 is passed, which essentially institutionalizes sterilization of Puerto Rican women amid American concerns at population control on the island. And it was designed by that eugenics board in the name of, quote, catalyzing economic growth and reducing unemployment. And we should note it was funded both publicly and privately. And again, follow the money, mm-hmm. follow the money. I mean, like during the progressive era, that sterilization was so much motivated by the whole concept of breeding. But then after World War II, well, and also welfare, but then world after World War II, oh, it's all about money. Well, yeah. And I mean, they still use the same types of coercive tactics we've talked about. They, they had people going door to door talking to women. Um, employers preferred sterilized workers. Uh, there was also a financial subsidy for getting the procedure. And again, you see women being misled and confused by the tie your tubes, get your tubes tied expression. And even as contraceptive technology was improving in the United States, did the United States say, oh, hey, Puerto Rico, we've got the pill now. Here are some condoms. Nope. They relied solely on sterilization. And uh, we have to shout out another rad woman, Dr. Helen Rodriguez Trias, who's a reproductive rights advocate who spearheaded CESA, which was the Committee to End Sterilization Abuses in the 1970s. And she was really responsible for bringing this issue of sterilization abuse happening in Puerto Rico to, uh, you know, mainland United States, kind of raising the the flag about that. And she said, women make choices based on alternatives. And there haven't been many alternatives in Puerto Rico. And it became so normalized that, yes, I mean, there were, you know, like women in the U.S., there were some women who were like, absolutely, you know, I want a tubal ligation. I'm done having kids or I don't want any kids. But there were also there was a story I was reading about um, one woman whose friend had been sterilized and she was like, oh, she got it. Well, I want that. I want it, too. I mean, they they like culturally made it into like a desirable thing. It's propaganda. It was government propaganda in the name of population control and essentially more money for the U.S. federal government. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And by 1965, what that turned into was that a third of all Puerto Rican mothers under the age of 49 were sterilized. Uh, that means that they were at a 10 times higher risk of being sterilized compared with women on the American mainland. And we see rad Dr. Rodriguez Trias bringing attention to Puerto Rico's sterilization abuse in New York. Uh, so, yes, we've already mentioned that she was a founding member of the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse, but she was also on the Committee for Abortion Rights and Against Sterilization Abuse. And she testified before Hugh for passage of federal sterilization guidelines in 1979, which is the same year that California finally repealed its sterilization laws. But as all of this is starting to happen in the 1970s, we now have to shift focus to Native American women. And this info is coming from uh, a pair of papers, one by Dr. Alexandra Minna Stern in 2005, sterilized in the name of public health, and also one looking specifically into forced abortions and sterilizations among Native American women in the 1970s. So if we hop back a little bit to 1965, the Indian Health Service begins sterilizing Native American women. 
I mean, seriously, it's like w- w- no woman of color is safe. And it, it, it's it's <laughs> I mean, it's all been horrifying. But but I mean, the the percentages are mind boggling. Twenty five percent of Native American women between 15 and 44 were sterilized by the 70s. And, and it's horrifying enough for any woman to be forcibly sterilized. But when you look at the fact that they're sterilizing women for whom fertility in children is a way to not only continue the tribe, but also to assure your social status within your tribe in a lot of cases. Like it's with these women, as with all of the women we've been talking about, you've got like so many layers of trauma. You've got the unexpected and forced sterilization, but you've also got the fact that now like you're unable to have any agency over your own body. Well, and it and it still too echoes uh, you know our legacy of slavery where bodies were property and right. monetized, you know, and and that family aspect too Caroline was something that African American women also talked about um during, you know, the Roe v. Wade era of saying like, okay, yeah, abortion rights, but you know, whereas white middle class women, upwardly mobile white women were fighting for the right to not have a family. Black women talked about how, yes, they were fighting for a right to have family and how important historically black community and specifically black family has been Mm -hmm. for them. It's the nexus of their lives. It's their safe space. Right. Well, exactly. Because in the system of slavery, families were ripped apart. Yeah. So Native American activists sound the alarm about this noticeable rise in forced sterilizations and abortions. And it catches the attention of South Dakota senator who gets the government accounting office to investigate further. So in 1976, the GAO steps in and they verify, OK, yeah. So between 1973 and 1976, there were at least... 3,406 sterilizations happening for these women living on reservations. But in their report, the GAO did not declare them forced. They were like, eh, you know, there wasn't a lot of evidence of coercion, you know. I mean, it's not the first time we've we've had governments not believe what women say about their own bodies. Um, but to put this in perspective... The number of sterilizations that were happening among Native American women per capita was equivalent to 452,000 non-Native American women. So between 1970 and 1976, as many as 25 to 50% of Native American women were coercively sterilized. And again, these tactics included the same old threats of, you know what, if you don't do this, we're going to take away your health care. We're going to take away your kids. Yeah. But thanks to these women's activism and the public reaction to the government accounting office's findings, you do see rules for federally subsidized sterilization start to tighten. So due to all of this activism that really peaks in the 1970s, which is led absolutely by women of color, you see the closure of federal funds going to subsidize sterilizations and the repeal of many of these states' sterilization laws. But it is still not a bygone relic. And California listeners, brace yourself, because, yes, California 
issued a formal apology, uh, offered no reparations, but issued a formal apology uh, a while back for its supreme violation of human rights. But first, a statistic. Correctional institutions in the U.S. are collectively the second largest provider of reproductive health services in the United States. I did not know that, Caroline, but it makes sense. It does make sense. And from 2006 to 2010, doctors in two California prisons, the California Institution for Women in Corona and Valley State Prison for Women in Chachia, illegally sterilized about 150 female inmates via tubal ligation. And this, again, was uncovered by the invaluable resource, the Center for Investigative Reporting. And what they uncovered is that there were possibly 100 more forced sterilizations dating back to the late 90s. And they found that between 1997 and 2010, the state of California paid doctors $147,000 for the procedures. And echoing the progressive era BS, pregnant inmates pegged for high recidivism were the targets of these procedures. And again, they were often performed during labor, which is, hello, uh, legally coercive because a woman in labor under so much pain and duress cannot give informed consent and there's this horrifying gentleman this uh gentleman he's no gentleman yeah he's a he's another deuce just like uh jay marion sims so gynecologist james heinrich who was in the prison system felt just like his progressive era forebears did that he was providing a public service. And this isn't like something from his diary that the Center for Investigative Reporting found. He told them that, quote, over a 10-year period, that isn't a huge amount of money compared to what you save in welfare paying for these unwanted children. I mean, as they procreated more, what? It's I all mean, the money. It's all about it's all about that. I mean, yes, it's about racism. Absolutely. And con- population control in that sense. But it is so much about that money. But is this not just more evidence that so many people care more about the fetus than the woman who's pregnant or the child once it's born? Because they're putting all of this money and time and resources into preventing, taking away a woman's agency and ability to reproduce or not reproduce as she desires. And they're just going in and doing the surgical operation without consent or informed consent and at the expense of this woman's the life she desires i it's just like it boggles my mind and and yet they're like oh it's for everyone's good but then they turn around and they're it's not like they're giving any support to the children she has you mm-hmm. know what i mean well and again in all of these scenarios i shouldn't say scenarios as if they're you know concocted somehow in all of these events, yes, there were some women who were consenting to this, were legitimately consenting to this. But it's like even even within the, even the context of that consent is, to use that old buzzword, problematic because of the motivations for even presenting the option mm-hmm. of sterilization. Um, and it's not government whistleblowers who have had any hand in stopping these coercive tactics, this abuse, this outright abuse. Um, in the case of the California prisoners, 
it was the prisoner rights group Justice Now, which in 2008 finally got the ball rolling to investigate and stop the sterilizations. Um, and on a related note, in 2013, the North Carolina state legislature did approve $10 million in compensation for the victims of eugenics between 1929 and 1974. And Virginia followed suit in March of 2015. But as far as I know, the North Carolina GOP was not too pleased with uh, the idea of uh, doling out that money. Um, so I well, don't, I we don't... all know that North Carolina is doing a great job of everything right now. Oh, North Carolina. But North Carolina is so beautiful. It's a lovely state. And I really like North Carolina for a lot of reasons, but I don't like their government. Um, so all of this in the past hour and change mm-hmm. to say that, yeah, we've got to broaden our definition of reproductive rights to an intersectional reproductive justice mm-hmm. because abortion and birth control are absolutely important. I love my IUD. I am so grateful for my IUD. But we have to keep in mind how all of these issues affect not only college-educated, salaried white ladies like us, but also the most marginalized women, the women on the the margins, to put it another way, um, who are incarcerated, who might be in immigration detention centers today who are often left out of those conversations and 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 that activism. Well, and just simply exercising empathy and realizing that not everybody wants the same thing you want. Yeah. Um, I think at the risk of sounding like a broken record, this whole episode is also an advertisement for the need for better and more comprehensive sex ed, um, as well as just a better a better education system in this country, period. Um, I, I, you know, just saw an article about how uh, formal sex ed is on the downswing in this country, and it breaks my freaking heart to to say that instead of a string of expletives, which is what I really want to say. Well, and this might sound disingenuous coming from two uh, white podcast hosts who have just talked about this issue for a really long time, but it is another lesson for feminists like us today to listen more and more closely to women of color. Oh, without a doubt. And I hope we hear from you. Yes. So with that, send us your letters. Momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Zara in response to our Salary Secrets episode. She says, I know people are very uncomfortable talking salary, even those who are aware of the gender pay gap. I don't have those reservations. How can women, people of color, and other minorities make sure that they are paid fairly? Prior to the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009, the statute of limitations was six months. You had six months from the start of your job to know and seek redress for any gender pay gap. That's not a long time, especially with the general reticence about discussing salaries. The Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act at least allows you to go back further. I think there's no limit as long as the pay gap is still in effect and get two years back pay recovery. I think two years is not much, but it's better than nothing. Back to the topic. 
What I usually do is either disclose my own salary and ask if that seems fair for such a position or ask people for their own salaries but make it clear that I want a ballpark figure, not the exact amount. People are usually more comfortable saying, your salary sounds right or you should ask for more. And sometimes they'll even say a good five grand more. I'm earning a low 60K salary or I'm earning between 60 and 65K. I've even asked, when between jobs, how much should someone with my experience earn? I usually get useful answers that I can use in my negotiations. I go the, my research tells me that the market rate for this position is X. Does that fit your own range? Root. It's harder for them to lowball me when I show that I've done my homework. And then Zara has sent us like, uh, let me count, approximately 70,000 links from the website Ask a Manager. And I want to make sure to mention that because several other listeners out there who've written us about this episode have also recommended that we and fellow listeners check out Ask a Manager. And so she says that the website Ask a Manager has a ton of great information about salary negotiation and sends us a bunch of posts. And if you fair listeners want to check it out, go to askamanager.org. So thank you, Zara, for all of your helpful resources. And also, Zara, uh, your name is so familiar because you are a gold star listener. You've been with us and interacting with us for years. So thank you for all of your insights you provided to us. And I've got a letter here from Maria from the same episode. And she writes, I just listened to your conversation with Gina and Ashley of Recruit Her, and I wish I could have been in the room with you. I would have loved to ask about salary negotiations outside of tech, specifically education. This is a fantastic question, by the way, Maria. She says, I'm a relatively new teacher, and I've found that many educators on the K-12 spectrum come up against the do it for the children. It's not really about the money attitude when trying to negotiate for higher pay. I've found this pattern is for people also working in professions that are often framed as callings, like artists, musicians, teachers, etc. It's as though the nobility of these careers somehow excuses being underpaid. As a young teacher just beginning her career, I'm trying to find an assertive and proactive way to fight for my worth in this slightly sticky situation. If any Sminty listeners out there have some tips or tricks, it would really help a girl out. Also, uh, to Maria's point, we've heard from uh, listeners working in nonprofit who have the same question like, hey, it's like a similar like, I have the calling. This is a very like noble thing. And Budgets are often very tight, so what are you supposed to do in those kinds of cases to make sure you're getting paid what you're worth? So let's keep this conversation going. Let's kind of build some kind of resource for this, because clearly we need some tips. Well, we've also heard from listeners in the service industry, particularly people at restaurants, whether they're front of house or back of house, and they're saying the same things to us in terms of like, literally, if I ask for like a dollar fifty more an hour, I could get fired. And I bet it's the same for retail. One of my besties was in retail for a long time, and she faced those issues. Um, so let's do something about it. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is where you can send all of your tips and tricks. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts with our sources, so you can read more about the horrifying history of sterilization abuse in the United States and Puerto Rico, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.
This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 